This Week in Retronauts, 60 Minutes of Athleticism. Lost amidst tryhard sequels and ill-considered Jake Gyllenhaal movies is the fact that the original Prince of Persia was one of the most impressive and influential games of the 80s. It really offered a perfect combination of factors to solidify its claim as a true classic. Great visuals, a memorable premise, and great gameplay. And just to top it all off, Prince of Persia was essentially the work of only one man. You don't really see that combination of excellence and authorial exclusivity much these days. Only Axiom Verge and Cave Story come to mind for me for the past decade. And in a lot of ways, Prince of Persia represented the end of an era. It was, in many respects, a last bastion of the old PC days, when a team consisting of just a handful of people could create something groundbreaking. Prince of Persia, like Out of This World a few years later, was a rare exception amidst the increasingly resource-intensive demands of game fans and the swelling ranks of development teams. In 1989, however, it was still possible for a lone designer to pull off an impressive feat of game-making on the level of Prince of Persia. It certainly helped that the game's creator, Jordan Mechner, had both the experience and the resources necessary to make it happen. burst onto the scene five years earlier with the martial arts action game Karataka. In many ways, Karataka felt like a rough draft for Prince of Persia. It was a far shorter and simpler game with very little to do besides dash forward and brawl with enemies. Nevertheless, it was downright breathtaking in its day, blending martial combat with unprecedented animation and Mechner's affection for Japanese film. There was simply nothing comparable at the time. Irem's Kung Fu Master wouldn't debut until the end of 1984, and Konami's Yai Kung Fu would appear the following year. In a sense, Karataka invented the belt scroller, and it wasn't exactly a belt scroller. It didn't feel as slight or twitch-oriented as most games of that genre, instead turning each and every encounter into a meaningful and tactical martial arts battle. Karataka proved to be a respectable hit on PCs, and it found second life on Japanese consoles. Fittingly, maybe, given the influence of Shambara films on the game. Having been created as a side project by Mechner during his college days, it presumably made him quite financially secure before he was even out of school. Whatever the case, Mechner could afford to take several years to complete his follow-up. Prince of Persia was in development for nearly half a decade before it debuted on Apple II in 1989, and with good reason. It represented a gargantuan effort for a single person.
Prince of Persia was clearly the child of Karataka. Both games featured the same incredible animation style created through extensive use of rotoscoping, a popular animation technique at film studios like Walt Disney Pictures and Ralph Bakshi Productions throughout the 20th century, rotoscoping involves filming live-action reference material and then tracing over it to create smooth, lifelike animation. Sometimes too lifelike, really. Rotoscoped elements had a tendency to feel out of place in hand-drawn cartoons, but as the sole style of animation in a game like Prince of Persia, it lent the whole affair a sense of realism and weight. Mechner filmed himself and his friends and family for reference material. Prince of Persia included only a handful of characters, or character types, and each was based on the body language of a different person from Mechner's life. For the heroic prince himself, styled largely after swashbuckling actors like Errol Flynn, Mechner filmed the game's composer and the only other creative contributor to the Prince of Persia project, his own brother Francis Mechner. This required genuine exertions on Francis's behalf. Unlike the hero of Karataka, the prince did far more than simply walk, punch, and kick. He was a nimble, athletic protagonist, dashing, leaping, reversing direction at a moment's notice, scrambling up walls, engaging in swordplay with nefarious opponents both living and undead, dodging a dungeon full of lethal death traps at breakneck speed. Thankfully, the prince was also a heck of a lot better equipped to deal with these challenges than its predecessor had been. Combat in Karataka, that is, the bulk of the game experience, felt like an unwieldy guessing game, with victory demanding a combination of trial and error and luck. Not so Prince of Persia. While swordplay and trap dodging were never quite a gimme in the game, the controls felt more responsive and the combat less haphazard. And really, this came down to a matter of necessity. The prince had a far more taxing world to deal with than the straight approach of Karataka's castle invasion. Where the previous game saw the hero approach the villain's castle from without, Prince of Persia forced players to overcome from within. The game begins with the evil vizier abducting the princess and casting the hero into the lowest dungeon of the palace. From there, players don't simply have to overcome a series of increasingly deadly challenges to escape the depths of the castle, they have to do so within a strict time limit of 60 minutes. The vizier, being quite punctual for an evil guy, intends to marry the princess in exactly one hour, which gives the hero a hard deadline to overcome. At that point, presumably, the vizier becomes the sultan through marriage, though for some reason once you beat the game and the hero gets hitched, he merely becomes a prince, as alluded to in the title. Well, it doesn't have to make perfect sense. It is, after all, just a pastiche of old-time Hollywood. The deadline lends the game a profound sense of tension, and perhaps shockingly for coddled modern players, creates the possibility of a fail state for the adventure. Your one hour deadline continues to tick down as you putter about through the dungeons, trying to figure out where to go next. Even if you die, the clock doesn't stop. Rather, you're returned to the beginning of the current area with the time you've spent since that checkpoint remaining deducted from the one hour timer. So while you can't lose directly via dying, it's all too easy to screw up enough that you send the game into an unwinnable state. The game doesn't end even if you don't have a faint hope of reaching the end though, so you can continue to trudge forward in futility, taking notes for your next attempt to reach the vizier's lair. And Prince of Persia offers no shortage of hazards to stop you along the way. The palace dungeon is riddled with traps, pits, time doors, guillotines, and floors lined with razor-sharp spikes. The hero has a health meter, but that's used strictly for combat. A single screw-up when it comes to platforming or sneaking past traps equals instant death. Prince of Persia's platforming requires absolute precision, but the game was designed with precision in mind. 
Mechner essentially invented a new form of play control for Prince of Persia, one in which the wind-up and wind-down animations associated with your actions creates a sort of rhythm and timing. With practice, you'll come to learn exactly how far forward the hero moves when you spur him into action with a quick tap, and how many tiles of dungeon flooring you need to reach sufficient velocity to vault to a distant ledge. You'll also get a sense of how soon before you reach a drop-off you need to hit the jump button in order to ensure the protagonist has enough space to actually work through his animation cycle for a jump. Prince of Persia strikes a tricky balance between control and animation. It's a balance that can be difficult to achieve, especially given the lack of the player's ability to cancel out of actions. Once you begin to move, you're committed. Happily though, the very specific grid-like layout of the dungeon complements the hero's limitations, and enemies move as methodically as the player's character. You never feel like you're at an unfair disadvantage, or that the bad guys can outperform you through no fault of your own, as was often the case in Karataka. Prince of Persia's challenges ramp up slowly, and the game throws in a few interesting twists, the most unique being a mysterious mirror. Unfortunately, that particular challenge didn't make the cut for several ports of the game, which could be why the sequel, Prince of Persia 2, The Shadow and the Flame, played up the mirror doppelganger concept as a As often can be the case, Prince of Persia inspired more great knockoffs than great sequels. Prince of Persia 2 was interesting and well made, but Mechner took a more supervisory role with the game and switched gears to a new genre altogether afterwards. Understandably, since by 1993, he'd been designing the same basic type of game for a decade. Prince of Persia 3D, a PC and Dreamcast only action game that launched in 1999, attempted to bring the series into the third dimension as the title suggested. Bizarrely though, it appeared to have been designed as if the creators had no idea that the Tomb Raider series had already shown how Prince of Persia could work in 3D. It wasn't until 2003's Prince of Persia The Sands of Time that the franchise found new footing. Sands of Time abandoned the methodical control mechanics of the older games in favor of a looser, more dynamic style. Combat played out at a grander scale, with the prince taking on multiple enemies at a time. Platforming prefigured the free-running trend that would define action games on the HD consoles, with players scrambling easily to new heights and even performing daring runs along walls. Sands of Time offered one other major difference from its classic predecessors, it turned time into the hero's ally rather than his nemesis. By collecting energy from fallen foes, the prince could use a mystical hourglass to rewind the action and recover from mistakes. A dramatic change from the series' original charter, but one that made for a more free-spirited and entertaining game. In a sense, The Sands of Time plays like a dry run for Assassin's Creed, not surprisingly given that Assassin's Creed creator, Patrice Dessalé, directed it, and that Assassin's Creed essentially began life as a Prince of Persia project. It's a far more comical game than Assassin's Creed, however, employing a light humorous touch that even Sands of Time's own sequels lost sight of. Alas, Prince of Persia quickly became the poster child for misguided facelifts in modern gaming. Ubisoft decided that its wise-cracking hero dressed like Aladdin was hampering the series' sales potential and retooled the poor prince for the sequel, making him super dark and edgy and pitting him against a female antagonist decked out in an infamously ridiculous metal bikini. While it played well, the new hardcore prince didn't draw new fans, and it repulsed the series' existing enthusiasts, making for a genuine lose-lose situation, 
The conclusion of the trilogy attempted to put things right, but the damage had already been done, and Prince of Persia petered out in a dismal undoing of what initially appeared to be such an incredible revival. The series received one last shot at redemption with an HD generation action game simply called Prince of Persia. Taking cues from both the Sands of Time and Sony's Ego, the 2008 adventure gave the prince a female companion who could occasionally help out in a bad situation. Unfortunately, neither the critical success of the game nor its beautiful art style could salvage its sales. Since 2008, there have only been two furtive attempts to do anything at all with the series. A DS game not worth talking about, and a decent but quickly forgotten Sands of Time remake called, fittingly, The Forgotten Sands. Then again, perhaps it's best for the series to lay fallow until inspiration strikes again. Assassin's Creed may have stolen Prince of Persia's place as a modern-day blockbuster, but given the way that that promising series has turned into a formulaic drudge, I'm perfectly happy to see Prince of Persia's classic concept preserved in relatively happy memories, then become the target of derision and resentment among gaming fans. In the end, the spirit of Prince of Persia was probably kept best alive by spiritual adherence to its game design philosophies. I've already mentioned two of the big ones, Eric Chahi's Another World, aka Out of This World, and Core Design's Tomb Raider. Both games operated around a similar premise. Take the Prince of Persia concept and apply new technology. For Another World, Chahi traded out the rotoscope pixels for simple polygonal graphics. Besides creating a uniquely stark visual style, Another World's flat triangles allowed an even more cinematic approach to game design. While the action remained strictly 2D, at least up until protagonist Lester Knight Chaikin climbed into a tank cockpit anyway, the polygons empowered Chahi to alternate between different points of view for dramatic and narrative effect. The fixed camera viewpoint of Prince of Persia felt decidedly video game-like, despite that game's cinematic influences. Another World, on the other hand, became far more movie-like, and each screen of the adventure became its own mini-story. Sometimes the camera would come in close to create a sense of confinement or emphasize some key point of interest, or it might pull back to present a sweeping vista, or demonstrate an interesting and important background element. The effect was subtle, but meaningful. Five years after the debut of Another World, Core Design took the Prince of Persia formula all the way into 3D with Tomb Raider. Core made some smart choices in the process. For starters, they downplayed the combat. Protagonist Lara Croft wielded ranged weapons and could auto-aim when pointed in the right general direction making conflict far less fussy than most other games in those early days before Ocarina of Time's lock-on and Resident Evil 4's over-the-shoulder gunsight zoom showed how to do combat in 3D. Shootouts existed to keep things lively, but they weren't really the point of Tomb Raider. Instead, the real emphasis of the adventure lay in exploration and discovery. Laura had a moveset swiped straight from the prince. She could walk, run, vault, climb, and pull herself over ledges. And most importantly, like the prince and another world's Chaken, her movements were tied to her animation cycles, and mapped out against the structure of the world. Tomb Raider's expansive caverns and ruins may have been 3D, but Core built them on a grid, and Laura's small motions corresponded neatly to the grid. Just as players would make tricky jumps in Prince of Persia by lining up the hero at the edge of a pit, then back up a few steps before taking a running jump, so too was Tomb Raider best approached with that sort of cautious observation. Like Prince of Persia, Tomb Raider has lost that mechanical precision in favor of more modern fluidity series became sort of caught up in an arms race with Prince of Persia after Sands of Time, with each franchise and spin-off Assassin's Creed constantly swiping one another's tricks. Something essential has been lost, though, something fans miss, 
and it's telling that Square Enix has essentially fallen over itself to promise that the upcoming Rise of the Tomb Raider will be much more in line with the classic Tomb Raider games with more exploration and, you know, tomb raiding. Honest. The challenging, meticulous style of Prince of Persia doesn't mesh well with today's more casual, mass-appealing gaming mindset, but you can still find a few holdouts here and there. Oddworld Inhabitants recently remade Abe's Odyssey, one of the most beautiful 32-bit Prince of Persia alikes. And I suppose we can offer the now cliched nod to Dark Souls, which lacks Prince of Persia's athleticism, but instead concentrates the precise, methodical timing of that game's control elements into its combat mechanics. Really though, Prince of Persia's influence has more to do with the intangibles. Along with games like Ninja Gaiden and Phantasy Star 2, it helped pioneer modern approaches to game narrative. Where those Japanese console games told their story through largely static, manga-style cutscenes, Prince of Persia drew on the narrative conventions of Hollywood and silent films to integrate its tale into the same worldview as the game action. Your final showdown with the evil vizier takes place in the same chamber in which he menaces the princess in the game's opening cutscene. Triangulate the two approaches, and you have the recipe for modern video game storytelling, which honestly didn't really take hold until nearly a decade after Prince of Persia's debut, with the likes of Half-Life and Metal Gear Solid. Prince of Persia is both a great game and a landmark in the history of video games. All in all, not bad for the work of a single dude. This episode of Retronauts Micro was funded through the support of Patreon. Check us out at patreon.com retronauts. You can listen to more episodes by checking us out at usgamer.net, retronauts.com, or by straight up subscribing to us on the iTunes store. You can also find us as Retronauts on all the standard social media channels. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week with a full episode about Double May Cry. Mm-hmm.